thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come together and study your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we go through this, and, and your spirit will be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. All right, verse 13. For we write none other things to you than what we read and acknowledge, and I trust you shall acknowledge even to the end, as also you have acknowledged us in part, for we are your rejoicing, even as you are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in this confidence I was minded to come unto you before, before that you might have a second benefit and to pass by you into Macedonia and to come again out of Macedonia unto you and of you to be brought on my way toward Judea. When I was therefore thus minded, did I use lightness or, or things that I purpose? Do I purpose according to the flesh that with me there be, that there should be yea, yea, and nay, nay? But as God is true, our word toward you is not yea and nay. For the, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timotheus, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen, unto the glory of God by us. Now he which established us with you in Christ, and hath anointed us, is God, who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Holy Spirit in our heart. Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul that to spare you I came not as yet unto Corinth, not for what you have been dominion over your faith, for we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith you stand. All right, so we're going to look at this. I don't know how far we're going to get on this. Last week we had one verse, so <laughs> there's a lot, a lot in here. It says in verse 13, For we write none other things unto you than what you read or acknowledge, and I trust you shall acknowledge even to the end. And remember we've said we know that there's at least three, and we believe that there's four letters to the church of Corinth in history, and Paul refers to at least three. And, the, and there's a possibility he's re referring to four letters. We only have two of them as scripture, and there's some that say there's a third one, but it's not, script, not scripture. Uh, the only ones we have are these two. And in one of them, apparently, Paul had been extremely harsh with the Corinthians because of where they were and the problems they had. And the Corinthian church had a lot of problems. Uh, First Corinthians that we do have shares a lot of the problems they had. And so here he's saying, we don't write anything unto you, but what you have read and acknowledged, you know, that you have full knowledge of. He says, we're not giving you anything new. Okay? And this is the way churches should be. We're not giving, pastors and teachers shouldn't be giving anything totally brand new to people. Now, we may give a way that you've never thought about it or understood it, but you know, there's nothing new when we teach the Word of God. It, you know, the New Testament's been around for, for almost 2,000 years. The Old Testament's been around for about 3,000, 3,500 years. There's nothing new in the scriptures, all right? If you're going to a church or listening to a pastor and he's going, I got all this new stuff for you, you probably need to get out of that church, <laughs> okay? Because it's got to come from the word. Now, the word may be new to us, okay? If you've not been, been studying it or following it in depth, some of it may be new to you, but it's not going to be new. If somebody comes, I've got new truth for you. No, I'm the only one who's ever taught this stuff before. They're probably a problem. They're probably not teaching you the word of God the way it's supposed to be taught. And I can remember when I was young and early in my Christianity, everything was new. Everything was exciting. Well, after you know, 48 years of studying it, there's not a whole lot of this is brand new. There's a lot of, oh, I've never thought about it that way but not that it's brand new. And we want to be careful, because Paul is saying here, I'm not giving you a bunch of new stuff. <coughs> All right? This is stuff that you have heard that you know. And if you study God's word, you're not going to be given a whole bunch of new. You know, uh, and if you've been studying for a long time, you're not going to get a lot of, oh, wow. 
and I've known some pastors who've tried to do a lot of the oh wows and they start mixing things together you know into God's word and you know it's like okay how does this branch of science that you're trying to bring in you know you know compare and you know you, you get all kinds of weird things when they start trying to wow you and you want to be careful of that the God's word has a lot of wow value when you read it especially when you're first learning it or first getting into it but after many years of study and it's like oh you know but you know what's really good is when you do get that oh you know never noticed that one before or, or never applied it in that way in my life before and that should be something we get all the time because his book is alive and quick and and I've told you that there's times when I read, you know because I read through the Bible I try to read through it every year and there's times when I have fun with God and I joke with him, God, when did you put that verse in there? It's not, you know, I've never seen that verse. It's not been there before. And I know that, I know that it's been there. But God's saying, pay attention to that verse. And we should all have those events where we kind of go, oh, never saw that before. Because that means we're growing. And God's showing us how the book is very important and alive. And we see this over and over again. But Paul is saying there's nothing new. You've had full knowledge of this, and anytime you get something that is, seems to be new to you, it should match the rest of the scriptures. It should fit in. If you're given something and it doesn't fit into scriptures, you're listening to the wrong spirit. And this is very important because this is where teachers can go off and take you down a, a long, long path by lifting things out of context and not matching with the rest of scripture. Paul's message about grace and mercy match the Old Testament. And this is one of the things when we go through the Old Testament, I point out, look at God's grace here. Look at his mercy here. Look at, you know, the way of salvation was through God and, his, and, and through Jesus Christ only. And it's not a new message. When we get to the New Testament, it is not a new message. It's just a fuller revelation of what was already there. And sometimes we'll get people, well, we have the, the, next, the next revelation. And I go, okay, where are you getting it from? because you know, uh, it's not scripture and then they give you these revelations that don't match scripture and we see this over and over in various denominations and church cults and everything we have the new revelation okay how come it doesn't match the Bible the New Testament matches the Old Testament okay, there's nothing new in the New Testament that isn't in the Old Testament it's not as clear in the Old Testament but it's all there and so Paul is saying, I'm not giving you anything new. You're being told everything that you've read and, and that you've got knowledge of and everything I've been teaching you is what you're being taught. You know, a lot of these people come out with their interpretations of it that don't match the scriptures and they'll tell you, well, I heard from God. Now, if, if somebody's defense is I heard from God and they're not basing it in the word of God, they didn't hear from God. They heard from de demons and seducing spirits. So, I mean, there's all kinds of crazy, bizarre things out there. Uh, but Paul's saying there's nothing new. There's nothing new. I'm not giving you anything new, Paul said. Which is why he praised the Bereans for going into the scriptures and what he meant by that. They were going into the Old Testament and proving what he said to be true. And for us, that's what we do. The New Testament has to match up to the Old Testament because God didn't give us a whole bunch of new knowledge out of the deal he says I'm expanding upon your knowledge I'm increasing that knowledge and so we get and people have come around in recent days and said well we're expanding upon this we're giving you new knowledge well the problem is that they're trying to give us new knowledge not deeper from what the scripture says and so we want to be very careful of this if you have somebody giving you new stuff coming from something other than the book the Bible and it doesn't match up it's not valid and people go well how do you know the Bible is valid well the, the, this is the Old Testament has never been in question because the Jews have set set up with scripture for them you know the canon for them has been decided a long time ago in the New Testament there's all kinds of books that were thrown out they were thrown out for two major reasons number one they didn't exist when the when the canon was designed they were weren't written until three or four hundred eight AD and to be part of scripture you had to have a number of things number one they had to know who wrote the book which is why the book of Hebrews almost didn't make it in because there's debate on who wrote it but it also had to be quoted 
by the first century early church fathers. Every book in the New Testament was quoted by first century leaders. If it wasn't quoted by them, it's not in the Bible. So when you hear people say, well, you know, when, they, when the Council of Trent met and, and decided the books of the Bible, they just picked the ones they wanted. No, they had a whole lot of rules, and the first one was that it had to be quoted. Otherwise, it wasn't, they recognized that the guys in the first century who were trained by the disciples were in the best position to decide what scripture was. All right, so even though it wasn't until 300, 400 AD that the canon of the New Testament was picked up, it's not that they just randomly picked it. And every book is quoted by the early church fathers. So don't ever get into this idea that they're books that were just thrown out because they didn't match what the message was. They were, not, they were thrown out because they weren't qualified to be scripture. Even though they have names of Thomas and Mary and all these other things, they were written way too late to be considered. And I give this to you because it's important for us to understand. Because the accusation people make all the time is, well, you know, the Catholic Church decided what books are going to be in the Bible, and they just randomly threw out anything that didn't match their, their teaching. No, they had a whole list of questions that had to be answered to be able to be part of the canon, and this is what Paul's saying. We're not teaching you anything new. We're not teaching you something that doesn't fit Scripture. The Apocrypha, if you ever read any of the books of Apocrypha, they're, they're, funny. they're fun to read. They're, they're, they're funny. But they teach things that aren't part of Scripture. So we know they don't belong in the Scripture. Bell and the Dragon is a great fiction fable to read, but it has nothing to do with God. So we look at this and say, Paul is saying, I'm not giving you new stuff. I'm not giving you new books to, you know, he did not look at his letters. And I'm, there are people that say that the, the apostles understood that they were writing Scripture. I don't think so. I think they were just working under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, dealing with problems in the church, especially Paul, and saying, here, here's your answers. And God says, yeah, that was inspired. The Gospels weren't written until almost the first century because they thought Jesus was returning any moment. So they were going, okay, we don't need to write down what we, we saw and did. Mark was the first one, and he put this down because things were, you know, these guys were getting old and all the rest of them came because at that time they're going, uh, we're kind of dying off and Jesus hasn't come yet. Uh, we need to put down the stories of Jesus. You know, Paul, you read Paul's letters, Paul was just writing letters to these churches. I do not believe he thought he was writing scripture. And not everything that Paul wrote is in the Bible. You know, we know that in Corinthians, there was at least three and if not four letters and we only have two of them. So we want to understand God inspired certain things. And these guys, you know, the accusation against people when they look at it, well, the disciples were trying to start a new religion. Why? They were Jews. The last thing they wanted to do was start a new religion. Matter of fact, Christianity, when it started, was considered a branch of Judaism. It was called the way. They had the protection that the Jewish religion had in the Roman Empire. Every writer of the gospel is a Jew, except for Luke. All right, and Luke got all of his information from Jews. They were Jewish in their origins. They, they did not, they were not, the disciples were not looking at starting a new religion. They wanted to do what is called, in, the, in our day, we call them completed Jews. They know Jesus Christ. They know, they know the Messiah. They were looking and saying, here is the Messiah. He has shed his blood for our sins. He is the ultimate sacrifice. And they were being rejected by Judaism. But the Romans looked at them as Jewish because they were following, they had all Jewish leaders following a Jewish rabbi. So they were Jewish in their mind. And it wasn't until much later that they finally got completely separated. The Jews didn't want to have anything to do with them because they were talking about the Messiah that they didn't believe. And they were causing problems with Rome. With this whole thing, we're not going to bow down to the Roman gods. And we won't say that Caesar is Lord. And that led into the persecutions and everything of Christians. 
And the Jews did not want to be attached to Christians because then they would be persecuted, even though they got persecuted anyway. We see this whole history of going on into Christianity. And they picked up the term Christianity. Christian in Acts tells us that it was a accusation against them because the, in Antioch they called them, you were just Christ followers. You were Christians. The Christians kind of liked that. You know, they were followers of the way, and then they got, took up the term, we kind of like the term Christian. Uh, we like the idea that we are Christ followers because that's what they were. But originally they were considered Jewish. And over the years there's been a great split between the two. And a technically new religion came out of it, but our roots are in Judaism. And there are many things in the New Testament that we don't fully understand without understanding the Old Testament to know what they were talking about. And this is why, you know, for a new Christian, I tell them just read the New Testament, get to know God's grace and mercy. But if you really want to understand the New Testament, you must start understanding the Old Testament, which is why we teach the Old Testament as much as we do, because you need both of them to fully understand. Because Paul is saying, I'm not teaching anything new, and his, his new meant going back to the Old Testament, the first 39 books. Okay, I'm not teaching you anything new. It's all been out there. And so he's going on in this, and he goes, in verse 14, you've read that you are our rejoicing, even as you also are ours, and that we are your rejoicing, even as you are ours in the day of the Lord. Paul's saying, I'm going to rejoice in you. You're rejoicing in us because we gave you the gospel, but we rejoice in you. And this is true in most, in most churches. The pastors and teachers love to see the growth of their people. And we take great joy in, in seeing the growth. And if you've discipled anybody, you know that feeling that this person's growing. Look, look, look at them. Look how they're growing. And hopefully the discipler, uh, the disciplee, looks at their teacher and saying, you have really changed my life. I spent the afternoon watching the Operation Christmas Child videos, and so many of these people were sharing how the box that they got from some unknown person changed their life, drastically changed their life, headed the wrong way, didn't know God, and now they know God, and they've been sharing with God since that point. They were rejoicing in those who gave while the people who give rejoice in the, in, the, in the way that people, our lives are changed. And, you know, we need both sides of this. And Paul is saying, you know, hey, you rejoice in us, but, you know, we're rejoicing in you more than that. Paul could look at all these churches that he had established and saying, you know, hey, there's, there's Christians in Philippi. You know, I'm really proud of them. Look how they're growing. There's Christians in Corinth. You know, I'm really proud of them. You know, uh, Ephesus, you know, and Colossae and all these places that he had been and going, you know, look at that. Look what they're doing. The greatest joy is when you see somebody that you've discipled start operating on their own with God. Starting Bible studies, going into seminary, becoming a missionary, whatever it might, sharing the gospel with people, whatever it might be, and you watch how they grow. And it might just be simply they fall in love with God's word. You know, maybe that's all that it is. They fall in love with God's word, but you know there's great pleasure in that because you know God's word is going to change their life. Yeah. And that's the greatest thing when I, when I teach people. Watching how God changes them. Knowing it's not me, it's God, but you know, knowing that I'm a part of it. You know, getting them introduced. And my ultimate goal is to watch them outgrow. You know, almost like the proud parent, you want to see your kids do better than you did, better than you taught them. You know, uh, my goal is that my children will take what I taught them and grow beyond it. You know, and I've all shared with you, my oldest son, he's one of the few people that asks me questions that I really have to research. <laughs> okay, why? Because he knows just about everything I know. Now, he doesn't know what I've learned in the last, you know, last couple of years since he's been, you know, 10, 15 years, but he has taken what I have learned and he's learned more himself. You know, and I take, I'm very happy that he has. You know, I am very proud that he can ask me questions that make me have to think. And that he can give good input into to discussions. My daughter can do the same thing. She's always talking about how the people are amazed at what she knows and 
And she's always amazed at how little they know because of the way she was raised. I'm, all my kids do not realize the benefit they had, even as I did not realize the benefit I had. My dad taught Bible studies at home. We talked about God's word at home. We, we, it was part of our lives. And so I learned and had a great higher standard that when I started studying on my own, I had a higher place. If I started on my dad's shoulders and my kids get to stand on my shoulders, which means compared to what my dad taught is much higher. And I hope that my grandchild gets to teach, you know, has the same thing if God tarries long enough and a great grandchild, whatever it is, will outstrip all of us because of where they're going to get to start from. And there's great pleasure, not that we did anything, but we laid the groundwork and the foundation for all of this. And you know, when you're going through it, you don't really realize what you're getting. You know, when you're sitting in a Bible study, you're sitting in a family that's doing this, you don't really realize what you're getting until you get away from that group. And all of a sudden you realize, what do I know compared to what others know? And I think I've shared with you this, the only time I've ever been scared in, of teaching was when I was 30 something and I got to teach the senior adult men's class. Okay, I went in that class terrified. Hey, number one, what is a 35-year-old going to tell anybody of that age? And I've shared with you, you know, back in those days, I was studying 10, 15 hours for, for my Sunday school class. I studied every moment that I wasn't working or going to school that week because I wanted to have a good lesson. The very first thing I said was, this is a really simple truth, and I just dropped the truth down, and I was ready to go to the main point of my lesson and one of the guys raised his hand and said, can you explain what you just said? <laughs> and I'm going, okay. These guys have been in church all their life. They've been teaching Sunday school. They've been the deacons, but they don't know God's word. They don't know the de even the be beginnings of God's word. And I'm going, okay. And it was a shock to me, but it was a great lesson also. You know, to not assume that people just because they've been a Christian all their life know anything. Because many times we aren't taught all that well. And I praise God that I was taught well. And I went to some great pastors in my lifetime and I was very quickly engaged in listening to some of the greatest teachers that are still on the radio, even though most of them are dead. <laughs> They're still on the radio. And knowing that my children have had the same advantage of being taught because they talk to me all the time about going to a bible study and just you know saying something that they think is so simple because of what they've been taught and everybody going what a profound <laughs> you know you have such great understanding you know and i can tell each one of you that as you sit here and we listen to these things eventually you'll go to some place and people are going to look at you and go where did you get all this from because not that I'm the greatest teacher, but I, I want to teach. And I have been taught well over my lifetime. And we take that. And I'm, and I'm looking forward. I, I know that my, some of my kids are going to be teaching people and studying. And I can't wait to see what they're going to have, the impact they're going to have in people's lives when they go, they just drop something simple. You know, but it's so profound to so many people because they've never heard. And this is what Paul's saying. I'm not teaching anything new. And he goes on for a whole book teaching them, which at the time probably seemed new to them. Even though he's telling you there's nothing new. I'm not, I'm not inventing all this stuff for you. It's go back, be good Bereans, go look. It's not new. It's not understood yet, but you, it's not new. Verse uh, 15. And in this confidence, I was minded to come unto you before that you might have the second benefit. Right, so he says, I'm planning to come to you. I really want to come to you. Why? So I can teach you again. You know, you've been having some problems, and I've, been, I've corrected it. But I'm looking forward. I want to come back, not just to chide you and make you feel bad, but I want to come so that you can be re-taught, that you can understand. And, you know, one of the things I'm finding so much, and I've said this so often, I am amazed at how often God repeats himself in the word of God. It makes me understand that God understands how dense we are as, as Christians. <laughs> you know, God's saying, okay, you need to be told 100 million times, I'm going to keep repeating it to you. 
And as Christian teachers, we repeat ourselves and we wonder, God, does anybody ever listen? And sometimes we have to remember that we took a long time to learn it ourselves. You know, uh, and I try to do that. I'm going, okay, God, yeah, it took me a long time to learn these things, so I'm going to give people grace to, to learn. It can be frustrating sometimes. I've been frustrated myself on how long it's taken me to learn some things. You know, especially when you get there. And as I say so often, when you get there and you realize it was so simple. God, why did I struggle with this for, <laughs> put your time frame in there, you know, a week, two, two weeks, two months, two years, <laughs> you know, 20 years, you know, why did it take me so long to learn this stuff when it was so simple? Because when you finally get there and realize it's all God anyway, you start realizing, oh, all I had to do was surrender God. Oh, <laughs> oh. And then we forget to surrender on the next thing that we do. And we finally get there and we surrender and go, oh, God, you know, I'm still dense. <laughs> I, I still don't understand. <laughs> and Paul is like this. You know, I'm going to keep telling you this because you need it. And we look at this and God is, you know, how patient is he with the Jewish people? Over and over again, teaching them the same thing. In the book of Judges, they learn something, they turn to God, they fall. They learn something, they turn to God, they fall. <laughs> Just like us. You know, the book of Kings. The book of Kings is the same thing. And sometimes they fall even when the king that changed, changed everything falls. And we look at this and say, God, you know, we're just like everybody else in the Bible. This is why it's so important to know the Bible. Because when Satan attacks us and says, well, you're the only one that's ever, you know, fill in the blank. You know, you know you're, you're listening to a service. You're very, very excited about what's being preached. And all of a sudden you get some wicked thought comes across your mind. And the very thing that Satan comes along and you must be really wicked. You are, you know, how could you have some, such a thought in the middle, the middle of church, in the middle of the pastor's message, and you're, and you're thinking that wicked thought? <laughs> then the second question is, nobody's ever done that, and you're the only one. And the sad thing is, we believe it so often. And we get into this thing and we, we suffer for so long thinking we're the only person. And you put your sin in there. You know, I'm the only one that has suffered in such a way. The really strange thing is when you start getting past it and you start sharing your testimony with people, you know, and I had this, that, or the other thoughts, and people go up, you know, I've got the same thoughts. I am so glad you shared it because I thought I was the only one. And this is why I quote... Uh, Ecclesiastes so often there is nothing new under the sun all right there's no temptation that's new there's no there's actually no truth that's new and we see this over and over even with all of the science that we've had and going over it's been rediscovered so many times over the years because in the past when a nation conquered another nation they destroyed all of their knowledge so you'd have these advanced societies understanding math and science and, and scientific truth, and then they would be conquered eventually, and they would destroy everything. And then we'd have to relearn it all. Yeah. The people of the, of the, in history at various times has known that the Earth was round, and they knew the exact size of the Earth. As long as they learned trigonometry in their sciences, they could determine how big the Earth was, and it wasn't new to the Egyptians. It wasn't new to the Greek. Now, most of them had never sailed around the world because they didn't have ships capable of doing it. But they knew how big the world was. And as each one was destroyed, they would have to relearn. We keep this in mind. There's nothing new under the sun, even in science. So we see God saying, there's nothing new. We're not giving you anything new. And Paul saying, I'm gonna, I really want to come to you. I want to come, but I want to make sure that I can be gentle with you. Okay, because in his second letter, he wasn't gentle. From everything we can tell on his second letter, on the true second letter, he wasn't gentle with them. He was very frustrated with them, uh, with where they were at and what they were doing. He was already frustrated in the first letter because he's dealing with a lot of their sins. And, you know, a lot of times people in, in today's world say, well, we should have been part of the first century search. They were so good. They were so perfect. Well, why did we have all these letters from Paul <laughs> making corrections if they were so perfect? Uh, if they were perfect, we wouldn't have had the New Testament. You know what amazed me? Now I'm reading in Ezekiel. 
you know what? When I read this, and they got anvils and saws and hammers, everything in there. I think. Go back to Genesis. They had them. Before the flood, they had them. We don't realize that there's really nothing new. You know, yes, we have some greater power now. We, we, we have harnessed electricity better than anybody that we know of. But you know, the Egyptians had batteries. The Egyptians had all these things. They had electricity. They were using electricity. Now, did they have it using as much power as we had? Probably not. I mean, there's nothing, nothing in the history saying they used it the way we use it. But it was not new. When Benjamin Franklin was playing with electricity, it was not new. When Thomas Edison was playing with electricity, it was not new. Uh, when Tesla was playing with electricity, it was not new. All right, so we, we know that it was all been all, all over the place. But they had batteries, they had indoor plumbing, they had running water. You know, none of this stuff is totally brand new, even though we've recently reintroduced it all. And we've advanced it a little bit, you know, with our pump stations and everything, and we can pump lots of water all over with our advanced use of electricity and pumps and all of that. But it's all been out there. In Egypt, they still pump water out of the Nile by hand pumps. You know, we've just been able to put electricity to the hand pump, hand pump and, and pump it through. And many times in the ancient world, they moved the water uphill, which was the harder part, you know, to move it up. It's easy to move water down. You just set a system to move it down. But many of these places set up systems of getting the water up. So again, it's not new. Nothing new under the sun. We've advanced it somewhat you know, with our you know, tying in a whole bunch of technologies and the fact that we don't lose technology every time a nation's conquered anymore because of the, the printing press and now the the computer world and everything making knowledge so easily obtained. So we do have some advancements there that we're not having to relearn everything every time we turn around. But in the past, they had to relearn it. But it's not new. And we got to keep this in thought. When we are attacked by sin, it is not new. The delivery of it may be new. The fact that we can watch it on our television sets or our computers is new. But the temptation is still the same. Pornography has always been around, okay, always. It's just a new delivery that we have, a you know, newer, newer delivery system of it, but the sin is still the sin, okay. Everything that's out there, we may have newer delivery systems, but the sin and the offerings are still the same. So never buy into Satan's attack. Well, you are so terrible. You're the only one. You're the only one that's ever got this problem with gossip. You're the only one that's ever had these thoughts in the middle of a, a Bible study or a, or a preaching, preaching session. You're the only, you know, that is a lie from Satan. And if you start sharing it with others, you're going to find out lots of people have the same problem. In <laughs> verse 16, and to pass by you into Macedonia and to come out again from Macedonia to you, for you to be brought on my way toward Judea. Paul's writing this letter at a time when he's collecting an offering for Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was being decimated. When a Jewish person got saved, and it still happens in Orthodox Jewish families today, they were treated as if they were dead. I have a pastor friend whose family, he came from an Orthodox family, he became a Christian. His family actually had a funeral for him. If he calls the house, especially now with caller ID, and they know that it's him, they will not answer. If they accidentally answer the phone and it's him, they will hang up. If he shows up at their house, they will, will not acknowledge him. In Paul's day, the same thing was happening. You have abandoned the faith. We do not recognize you. And by not being recognized, if they had a business, nobody went to their business. Even if other Christians came to your business, it wasn't usually enough to keep your business running. Because who are you buying it from? The other, the other Jewish merchants wouldn't sell you anything. All right? So they were starving to death. They were having trouble with their businesses. Nothing was happening with this. And Paul's saying, churches, we want to take this offering up and help the church in Jerusalem. And you read this in various places. He goes, I'm ready to take this. And then later on, we're going to find out that the, he, as far as he was concerned, the Corinthian church didn't even trust him with the offering. So he says, fine, you don't want me to handle it? You send somebody with me. 
to handle it. Because I don't need the offering. I, you know, if you don't trust me and those to carry it, you know, we find out that the, the Corinthian church didn't trust Paul. He started the church. They, they loved him on one side, but the, the Judaizers had made life a mess for Paul in Corinth. They really got a foothold in, in Corinth and really made life difficult for Paul. Satan destroying, destroying the, the pastor, the founding pastor. And this happens even in our day. Satan can really get in, involved in, in churches. You know, you get groups of people that come up against the pastor and don't like what the pastor's teaching. And, you know, how can the pastor teach this? Or, you know, this pastor is just too full of himself. He thinks he's too much this or that. Uh, and the next thing you know, there's controversy within the church. And Paul had that problem in Corinth. They, they were going, well, you know, this guy, you know, his message isn't quite on, isn't quite right. You know, you need, to, you need to question what he's saying. Paul had already told him, question, go look it up, <laughs> follow it up. You know, so that, that part didn't really bother him. It's when they listened to the other people rather than going back to the, the scriptures and finding out, is what I'm saying true? It didn't bother him that they questioned him because he praised the Bereans for that. <laughs> you guys do well. You're, you're studying the scriptures to see that, what I'm telling you is the truth. The, Corinth, the Corinthians didn't seem to do that. They questioned him, but they never went back to the scriptures to say, oh, he's telling the truth. And this is what he's saying. I'm not teaching anything new. I'm not teaching anything new. Go back to the scriptures. Check it out. And he goes, I wanted, I wanted to go to you when I went to Macedonia, and I want to come back to you when I come back out of Macedonia to, to share with you. I love, I love you guys. I just I want to share Christ with you. I want to see you grow. And this is what's true for us when we teach Bible studies. We want to see growth. And we just encourage, you know, it's encouraging when you teach something. When you teach your children, you know, and they learn, there's an encouragement on it. Even if it's not Bible, it's still, oh, you learned how to ride your bike. You learned how to walk. Yeah, you learned how to read. You learned how to study. Oh, you learned more than I ever learned in school. <laughs> you know, but, you know, we look at that and we laugh, but, you know, that's really what we want them to do. I, I went through high school, I want you to go to college. Okay, You've had, you know, I went to college, I want you to get your master's or your doctorate. I want you to be better off than I was. And this is what Paul's saying, I want you guys to grow. You know, I want you to, to be there. And then, you know, so I brought it on my way to Judea, verse 17. When I therefore was thus minded, did I use lightness? Or the things that I, pur that I purpose? Do I purpose according to the flesh that, you, that with me there should be yea, yea, and nay, nay? He goes, you know, was, you know, did I, was I thus minded? Did I, you know, was I trying to trick you or, or use lightness? And that's frivolity. Frivolity. He goes, I wasn't joking. I wasn't being lighthearted. This was serious. And he's saying, my, my messages to you were very serious. I wasn't being light. I wasn't, a, I wasn't telling jokes and making light of everything. And he's saying, I was serious. And he goes, and I, and I wasn't yay, yay, and nay, nay. He wasn't saying, he, was, he basically saying, I wasn't being wishy-washy in our language. Okay? I wasn't saying yes and no. Uh, I was telling you the truth. Even if it didn't sound good or you didn't like it, I wasn't being wishy-washy. I told you the truth. And we have lots of pastors in lots of churches that are being very wishy-washy. They won't take a stand on anything in the Bible. And you know, when I, get, when I hear somebody like that, it's like, okay, will you please say something? <laughs> will you take a stand on something so that I can know what it is that you're wanting to stand on and know whether it's true or not? God's word takes stands. There are sins that we need to be aware of our sins. Don't lie, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't commit fornication, do not commit uh, homosexuality. There are things that are very clearly sin, and we need to take a stand on those sins. There are a number of things that aren't necessarily sin. Now, God says don't be, don't be drunk, but he doesn't really say anything about drinking. So we can't take a stand on drinking because there's no verse that says thou shalt not drink. There are verses that say don't be drunk. Okay. And, when it, the and there's a huge difference between the two. 
Matter of fact, Paul told Timothy, drink a little wine because your stomach is so bad, I want you drinking some wine. And that would have been a medicinal purpose, getting the alcohol into his digestive system to kill any bacteria, parasites he might have had. He says, go drink a little alcohol and, and purge your system. Now, he, was, he wasn't necessarily understanding what he was telling him, but he was saying that it is good for you. Now, he was also assuming that he wouldn't drink so much that he would get drunk. Uh, but you know, we've got to be looking at these things. What is God asking of us? He wants us to live righteously. He wants people to look at us and say, now that is a Christian and that's how a Christian's supposed to live. And for each one of us, hopefully, we live a life that people look and say, all right, that person has changed a lot, especially if they know you for a long time. And you get saved and they say, I see the difference. That person used to be an alcoholic and a drunk, and now they're in church all the time. That person used to be one of the meanest, nastiest people in town, and now I'm starting to see some love and acceptance out of them. You know, it must be that church that they go to. <laughs> you see them go there every Sunday, and now I'm seeing their life changed. You know, are we living that way? Hopefully we are. Because God is working in us and living out of us if we are his. And this is what Paul's saying, you know, there is a truth. There is, I'm not, I'm not being wishy-washy. Verse 12, or 18, but as God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by us, even by me and Sylvanius and Timothy, was not yea and yea, but in him was yea. Okay, and what he's saying is we preached the gospel to you, and it wasn't yes or no, but it was, yes, we took a stand and we told you the truth. And this is, uh, Paul saying, we preached to you and we preached the truth. We weren't being wishy-washy, we weren't saying yes and no, but we were saying this is what God says. Yes. You know, yes, we are sinners. Yes, we just need Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus died for our sins and was resurrected and he's coming back again. You know, not, well, well, you know, well, there's lots of ways to heaven, and if you don't like this one, go choose something. No, that's not the message we get from God. Okay? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father by, except by me. And in our day and age, you teach the truth and that truth, and people look like, well, you're so narrow-minded. Yes. Yes, I am. Because there is only one way. Yes. Uh, you know, you don't like my message, I don't care because this is what Jesus said. And if you don't believe it, you will not make it to heaven. Well, that is so narrow. I think I can do good works. Well, I'm sorry, Jesus said no. The Bible says no. The Bible says that your good works are filthy rags. You won't, you won't make it in your filthy rags into heaven. You know, well, I don't even believe that there is a heaven. Well, then you're going to be surprised when you die and enter the afterlife. And you end up in hell and not heaven. We take our stand on the word of God. And it's very hard in our day and age to take a stand sometimes. If you're not willing to be, to be made fun of, to be criticized, to be able to take a stand and say, this is what God says. And then you'll be accused, and you'll be made fun of, and you'll be called narrow-minded, bigoted, uh, Bible thumper, <laughs> whatever, whatever term you're going to hear, and they're going to go, well, you are just so intolerant. You know, what about all these other ways? And the greatest thing that can happen is just agree with them. I used to love in the, in, when I was going to college a second time, people, well, you're just so intolerant with that view. And I go, yes, I am. <coughs> and, you know, and they would just look at me because being called intolerant in our day and age is the worst thing you can call somebody. To call them as intolerant is a terrible insult. And when I said, yes, I am, it was like, the Antioch people saying, Antioch Christians saying, we like this term. We're insulting you by calling you Christians and, and you're what? You're, you're not insulted? No, I take that as a badge of honor. If I'm intolerant because I won't accept your way of thinking, then praise God, I'm going to be the most intolerant person there is. Now, in the old days, we, we considered our Christians were the most tolerant people because we decided you had the right to be wrong and there was no problem with it. But intolerance has changed its definition in recent years to be 
you have to accept what others believe and give it equal weight to what you believe. No, not going to happen. By that definition, Christians are the most intolerant people in this world because we believe God says something and God said he's the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by him. If you're going to be a good Christian, you're going to say, yes, I'm going to be the most intolerant person there is. Your Buddhism, your good works, your, your Hinduism, your whatever it is you're following is not going to get you to heaven. And we need to be that way. And if it draws us criticism, it draws us criticism. If it ends up putting us in prison for being hatred, for hate speech and hatred that we're going to have and be charged with, then we're going to be put into prison for these things. America has been so blessed that we haven't had to deal with these things. Many places in this world, if you preach the gospel, you go to prison. If you say that Jesus is the only way, you go to prison. Especially if you're in some of the Asian or Middle Eastern countries or even much of Africa, which is Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, and you start talking that Jesus is the only way, you may find yourself in prison. We're not far from it anymore. We are getting much, we are getting very close to it. Yeah. Oh, we're already considered, Christians are already on the terror list. Yeah. yeah. There are many people in our government that think that we are a harder, greater threat than the Muslims in America. Okay, much has been done in the name of God, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Christianity. And that's where we get accused of. And we have to be, yes, things have been done in his name, but nothing that Jesus never preached violence. In the scriptures, there's nothing in there that says, go kill everybody who doesn't agree with God. So we need to be understanding that Christians are listed as potential terrorists because we will not bend to the world's way of thinking for true Christians. For all the promises of God in him are yea and in him amen. And amen means verily or let it be so. Unto the glory of God by us. You know, God's messages are very positive for the most part. Yes, there's lots of this is sin, there's going to be punishment. But what's the ultimate message of God? I want you to be with me for eternity. And this is something that's the accusation that's coming against the church a lot in our day and age. In God's Not Dead 3, it was very crystal clear when the college student went to the pastor and said, you know, the problem that the church is having with our young generation is we know what the church is against, but we don't know what the church is for. And we've got to be careful that we don't get so sucked into the battles that we fight against homosexuality and fornication and, and adultery and all these other battles and transgender issues and all these things that God said are sin. And I'm not saying we're ever going to just stop calling them sin. We're going to call them sin. But what is the Bible for? The gospel of Christ. Jesus died for our sins, was buried, was resurrected, and the power of the Holy Spirit to live a godly life. If we start emphasizing the positive things about God, the rest will go, the rest will be taken care of. Revival will change. And remember what I've shared about the, the first two big awakenings in America. All they did was preach the gospel. They didn't go out, you know, condemning all the sin and everything. They just preached Jesus Christ and him resurrected. And people's lives changed so much, especially in the second great awakening, their lives changed so much that the brothels closed, the bars closed, the, you know, all these things closed. Why? Not because everybody was making laws saying close them, but so many people were becoming Christians and nobody was going there. You know, the bar owner would get saved and he would change his bar from a bar to a church. <laughs> the same thing with the brothels. They would change it you know, because they got saved or so many people had gotten saved that nobody came. How can we change the world? We go back to the way it was changed originally. We preach Christ. We lift up Christ. We don't attack the sin. Sin is sin, and we need to make sure people understand it's sin, but the reason we teach people sin is so they realize that they need a Savior. And again, when I tell people, you know, how do you, how do you lead a homosexual or a transgender individual to Christ? It's not by teaching them that those things are sin. But... Talk about the things that they know were sin. 
I'm sure they're a liar. I'm sure that they've cheated people, committed murder in their heart, just as Jesus said, they had been angry at somebody. There's all kinds of things we can teach them their sin and then let Jesus get hold of them and then Jesus will change them and get hold of them and take them out of their other sins. How do I get rid of any sin? You know, if you go to somebody who's a drunk and isn't recognizing that that's a sin, you can preach all day to them that being drunk is a sin. And it's not going to affect them. You know, because they're going to go, well, it's just, you know, especially in our day, I'm just sick. Yeah, I have, I'm an alcoholic. I have alcoholism. Satan is trying hard to change everything that God calls a sin into disease. And alcohol is a thing that is a sin when you're drunk. And now they're not alcoholics. They suffer from this, the disease of alcoholism. You can't call me, you know, you can't say I'm sinning because I have this disease. That would be like saying somebody who caught the flu was sinning or caught a cold is sinning. And you'll hear that. You'll hear that from them. And you know what? Fine. I won't deal with you, alcohol. Let me show you that you're a sinner, <laughs> that you need Jesus. And they get saved, and then God can deal with them with their sin. Be very careful when you go after people about their sin, because our job is not to make good sinners. Now, and I've heard this from Christians. Well, when that person stops drinking, I'll tell them the gospel. When, when they turn from their homosexuality, I will, you know, I will go and tell them about Jesus. When they quit becoming a womanizer, I'll go tell them about Jesus. Our job is not to make good sinners. Jesus had problem with good sinners. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were some of the hardest people he dealt with, and they looked at themselves as being good. You know, we don't want good sinners. As a matter of fact, it's much easier to lead somebody to Christ who is a sinner and knows that they're a sinner than somebody who thinks, well, I got my life put together. Our job is not to make good sinners. Our job is to convince people they need Jesus. And then let Jesus make them a good sinner. <laughs> no, make, make them sanctify them and make them good. But, you know, no matter how good you go, we're going to still be sinners. You know, I say that in jest. I say that in jest, but you know, I want to make sure it's clear for anybody else. You know, and I say that tongue in cheek, you know, because we're always going to be sinners. But God is going to change us slowly over time and make us more perfect when he's in us. And it's him that does the work. And this is why I keep sharing the easiest thing in the world is to be a Christian. Because all I got to do is surrender to God and let him crucify my flesh and change me. The more I struggle, the more I fight, the harder I work at this, the less victorious I'm going to be. The more I learn to surrender to God, the greater victory I'm going to have in my life. God, just crucify my flesh, I surrender. God, that hurt. <laughs> Those nails in my flesh hurt. But God, thank you, you're, you're, you're killing the flesh. It hurts. Don't get me wrong. It hurts. Because all of us don't like our flesh being hurt. None of us like our flesh being hurt. It hurts. <laughs> but you know, when we look at the, what is the result, it is so important for us to keep our mind on the result. Jesus hung on the cross and became sin for us. He did not do that because he goes, well, God, I want to really be hurt. He did it looking and saying, Father, the benefit of this is going to be so great. There's going to be millions, billions of people that are coming into, the, into our family because of this sacrifice. God, Father, I'm willing to go through this. Father says, I'm willing to go through it too. When you become sin and we're separated, I'm willing to go through that so that we can have these billions of people come to us. How do we get through the hard times? We go, God, you've got a plan. Don't understand it. I've said many times, a lot of my answer to God is, God, I don't understand how this is going to work out for good. I don't know how any of this can be good. But you know what? I don't need to understand how it's going to be for good. All I have to do is trust God that it is going to be for good. Because he promised that it's going to be for good. Now, he didn't say it was going to be for my good. But he said it's going to be for good. There's things that we go through that we don't understand. We look at this and say, God, what is it that you want me to do? And we walk in it. And we trust God that he is going to make it good. 
And you know, to me, that's, that is one of my favorite scriptures. God, you're going to make everything work together for good. Might not know what the good is until I get to heaven. Sometimes we get to know what the good is before then. But you know, we might not understand what the good is until we get to heaven. Verse 41. I want to try to finish this if you guys don't mind. For the promises of God are yea and amen. Now he which establishes us with you in Christ, he hath anointed us is God. God is the one that anoints. He's the one that puts teachers in our paths. And he says, you know, it's God. He's established us with you in Christ. Our life is established in Christ. And it's God that does it. You know, and when we really start understanding that God is in control, that's the other part of all things work together for good. Why? Because God is sovereign. And he is good all the time. You know, and we need to really understand God is good all the time. And as he was saying the other half of it, all the time God is good. When we think that God's not being good to us, revert back to that statement. God is good all the time. You know, we need to keep this in mind. God, you know, I'm going through a lot of pain and suffering here. And God's saying, I'm good. I have a plan. It's going to be for good. God, it hurts. I've got a plan. It's good. You know, many, about three years ago, we put the, we put the saying up on the, on the PowerPoint, you know, God's will is what I would choose if I knew everything. If I knew everything, the pain I go through, I'm going, oh, okay, God, I see how that's going to help that person, you know, looking at me. Oh, God, I see how that's going to prepare me for 20 years down the road. The problem is we're short-sighted and we go, God, I'm just in pain and I don't like it. And I'm not saying ever get used to it. <laughs> we'll never really get used to it. But we go, God, you've got a plan. And you are good. The Christians in the first century who would be rounded up and marched in front of an altar and said, if all you do is drop a few grains of, of meal on this altar and say that Caesar is Lord, you'll live. And many of them did. Many of them would make this logic, well, God will know that I'm just trying to protect my life and he'll forgive me. And you know what? Probably would. But you need to be able to also understand that God didn't want that. He did not want you even making it look like you were worshiping another God. And yet many people did turn their back on God, at least apparently. And, but that was the first step in a downward trend for many of them that led them away. And then it says, the Spirit, in, who has sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts? Sealed. You know, why, why do we seal envelopes? Is so that we say, what's in here is what I put in here. Okay, nobody's changed it. Nobody's altered it. It is what I have put in there. In their day, they didn't have adhesive seals around it. They would, they would close it up, fold it up tightly, put wax on it, and imprint the wax with their seal. Same purpose. What is in here is what I wrote. God says, he has put a seal on us. He says, what I have put in my people is mine. It is not altered. It is not changed. God has sealed us and said, authentic. It is real. This is, this is mine. And I, and, I, and I testify to it because it is sealed. And the earnest is the down payment. You know, if you've ever bought a big ticket item and you say, I want to buy this and I agree to buy it, you may be asked to put earnest money down. You, you know, a house. Used to be sometimes with a car, mostly with a house anymore. I put down a, not really a down payment either. It's, it can be, it'll usually roll into the down payment. But this is my promise that I'm going to buy this property. Okay, and if I back out of it, they keep the earnest money. The Holy Spirit is God's promise that I've got greater things for you in heaven. And boy, the spirit enough is, is a great enough gift. And this is what I've shared so many times. You know, if there is no heaven, what God has given me on this world is so valuable to me that I'd be excited just if this is all there is. 
but because he's given me the Holy Spirit, and he's given me joy, and he's given me peace, it's my proof that there's more to come. But you know, if this is all there is, I'm not, I'm not disappointed with the life I've lived. I've been full, I've been filled, and I've been with great joy and peace all my life because I got saved early. And if you got saved later, you have a comparison to go, you know, my life was so changed. <laughs> that is great. But that down payment of the Spirit just proves to us there's greater things to come. It's the proof of eternity. Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul that to spare you I came not as yet unto you in Corinth. Not for that we have dominion over your faith, but we are your helpers in your joy, for by faith you stand. Paul saying, it's really good that I didn't come. You know, Paul, Paul apparently had a temper. We see this in any of his letters. He had a temper. And he's saying, it's really good that I haven't come yet. Because I have been so mad at you that I would have let you have it with, they don't have shotguns back then, but I would have let you have it with both barrels. You know, so it's good that I haven't come yet. He goes, not that we have dominion over your faith, but by your faith you stand. You know, but because I love you so much, I really want to see you grow, and it's good that I'm not coming yet until I've had a chance to calm down. My dad had this habit before he would, before he would discipline us to send us to our room to think about it. it was, that was just what I was getting ready to say. It was more for him to calm down before we got the belt, you know, so that he didn't spank us in anger. It was miserable going up and thinking about what was going to happen. But, you know, it was for him just to calm down and not discipline in anger. And Paul's saying, it's good to you that I haven't come because I would have done your discipline in anger and I want to be able to do it in love. I want, I want you to be able to grow from this, not be hurt from this. And this is what true relationship does is we disciple and are being discipled, not done in anger, but done in love. And this is why God keeps repeating himself so many times. And he does some pretty harsh things, but you know, he says, look at all this. I'm giving you so many chances. How many chances does God give us in our lifetime? You know, so many chances. When God finally takes us out to the woodshed, you know, it's after many chances, after many teachings, after many reading of the scriptures, after many tests, and he says, okay, we're going to do this the hard way. He says, that's what you, you want to learn the hard way. We're going to do it the hard way. And our goal should always be to learn the easy way. Yes. Unfortunately, we are sinners, and we don't like to learn the easy way. Um, we usually don't even recognize that we need to learn. And this is the sad thing. We don't realize that we were needing to learn until after we've learned the lesson. And we look back and go, God, I, I worked six years against you, and, you, and it was so easy. I had this lesson. You were trying to teach me a lesson, God? That's why I was going through all this hardship? And, and hopefully as we mature, those lessons get shorter and shorter to the point where, you know, I've had a few times when it's only been seconds where I'm going, okay, God, what is it, what is it you want? Well, you, you, want, to, you want me to do, okay, God, yeah. Well, well, what do you want me to do? <laughs> There's other times when it takes weeks and months. <laughs> I'm still I, haven't, I haven't gone too many year-long year ones now that he's been doing it, but I had this six-year one where I fought with God for six years. That was miserable. Six years of misery was terrible. And being, a, being the father and a husband, that was six years of misery for my family. As a pastor, I don't want to go through six years of training because it's not only now going to hurt my family, it'll hurt the church. I do not want to go through years of problems. I don't want to go through months of problems. I'm trying very hard to listen to God and say, God, what do you want me to do? And try to bend my will as quick as possible because it's not just me who will suffer at this point in time. It's not just my family that will suffer at this point in time. It will be the church that suffers if I don't learn my lesson quickly. And I don't want the church to suffer. I never want to see my family suffer again. I want so much for God to say, learn quickly. And I am learning quicker than I've ever learned in my lifetime. <laughs> not that I probably won't have a time where it takes me months, but I am learning my lessons a lot quicker than I ever have because I've seen the effect that it has had on those that I love.
And I don't ever want to see that happen again, and I really don't want to see it happen to the church because I love everybody in the church and don't want to see them affected by it. So we need to pray for each other. Yes, you know, we need to pray for ourselves. God, teach me quickly and help those around me be taught quickly because it can be miserable when you don't learn your lesson <laughs> and you take a long time to learn your lesson. And the thing about sin, and this last thing I'm going to say, the thing about sin is it always affects other people. No sin is an innocent sin that only affects you. Sin always affects others. And it is always worse than you think it's going to be when you calculate the cost of it. Always. And it will always affect those you love the most in, in many cases. So we want to be very careful to very quickly turn to God and change. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come before you and to learn. Lord, help us to quickly turn to you. Help us to see you and follow you and always be willing to listen to you and keep in mind that you are good all the time and you have good plans for us. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen.